Back in the day, as the younger generation likes to say, Mark Brayshaw would have been the classic jack of all trades. An AFL player, club official and board member, and now the boss of the Coaches Association. Yet his toughest job has just started. The emotional roller coaster following the fortunes of three sons at different AFL clubs. He also happens to have a fourth son, his eldest, on the ground with the Australian forces in Afghanistan. Hardly a sedate life in middle age, Mark. I'm very lucky, Mike. You are. High achievers, all of them. So far, yeah. Yeah. What about their father? Uh, all my friends that I played footy with and went to school with are um, speculating. There's two theories of, that they <laughs> apply, Mike. One of which is that all the boys have thrown to the dam. The other is that whatever they've got skipped my generation from <laughs> my dad. So, uh... Well, you do come from good stock. Your father, Ian, was a state cricketer and a premiership player in the Waffle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he was. Very good. Um, uh, and my brother and I, oldest brother... Your brother, up, James? Yeah, mm. playing footy and cricket and hanging around, particularly uh, at the Wacker. Uh, so, yeah, we were sort of sports brats. Mm. And I suppose there must have been a genetic predisposition towards... Because <laughs> James was a very good cricketer and I was, at the very least, a very enthusiastic footballer and uh, yeah I'm a very lucky man. Well we'll get back to the kids but I want to ask you about your football. You were drafted by North Melbourne in 1989 I think yeah. at number six so they obviously saw something in you. I was a bit late. I was pretty immature as a, as a uh, young guy and took a little while to find my feet. Jared Neesham arrived and um, inspired me to be as good as I could be and then I got drafted and Greg Miller called out my name. I was uh, you know in that, those days North were a very low profile club but my brother was just mad North Melbourne. So the chance of going to Arden Street, um, I mean, I just wanted to come to Victoria, but the, he was particularly pleased that I got drafted to North. And uh, in those days, the only player that I really knew was Jimmy Cracker, um, because, of course, as a West Aussie, you know, mm -hmm. kept an eye on him. And it was a thrill. It was an unbelievable thrill. Didn't really... Um, as a player, I made a good director at North Melbourne. <laughs> but uh, it was a wonderful couple of years. Well, only 32 games, given the faith that they've, they've invested number six in you, pick number yep. six, you only lasted three years and 32 games. Yep. Was it a fair decision when they decided to delist you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I was. Look, I, I wasn't good enough. Simple as that. I also... I, I, my career's just... I started when professionalism was coming in and I was not a very professional player and, and not many of the club were, but I didn't have the ability... Uh, I needed to be as professional as humanly possible to optimise my career. So I look back now and think to myself, well, if I had done things a lot better, um, I might have been able to play a year or two longer, but no, no, the club, they certainly didn't miss me. Is it true that you were runner-up in the Sandover medal? Yeah, yeah. And look, I, I took a little while to find my feet at Claremont, and then when Jared arrived, um, he just he, his position was, if you're good at whatever you're good at, you need to be as good as you can be, and I was... Um, that stage I played in a key position, we had a really good side and I, yeah, with a game to go, I was winning the Sandover over middle in 89, mm. which is, yeah, it's quite remarkable. Your father was an outstanding sportsman, wasn't he? Yeah. I mean, uh, we mentioned about the football, playing in a premiership yep. team for Claremont. A regular, well, you played state cricket for year yep. after year and yep. happened to take 10 Victorian he wickets did. in he one did. innings. Wonderful story. So my dad played 101 first-class games for WA. And then I started in the 60s and finished in the 70s. So, as I said, James and I grew up, and my sister and little brother, but they were a bit younger when he was playing, in an environment where he was a, an athlete first and a, and a journalist second. Um, and in those days, test cricket was nowhere near as prevalent. It was still the pinnacle, but they didn't play as much test cricket. So Sheffield Shield cricket was massive. We grew up going to the Wacker all the time, and it was full houses. And on this particular day when he took 10, um, I was only a baby, but uh, the Victorians arrived at the Wacker expecting to break the then, or the current, 
um, world record for a first innings um, score, 1107. Dub Victoria versus New South Wales in 1920-odd. And they arrived reasonably confident based on the strength of their batting lineup, and um, in light of what they thought was a pretty soft West Australian bowling attack, although Graham McKenzie was the mm -hmm. opening bowler, expecting and having announced that um, you know, they were going to have a crack at this world record. And they announced that, did they? Yeah, yeah. The West Australians knew and the media got a hold of it. This is the Victorian team including Stackpole and Cowper yeah. and that ill? Yeah, 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 Laurie. Laurie, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, shortly into the second day's play, um, they were all out. 161. Dad took 10 for 44. And, and I, I hope this is true because if it isn't, it's a silly good story. But the, uh, the ABC commentator um, welcomed the Eastern States listeners at just after lunch. Uh, with news that Victoria have fallen short of their pursuit of the world record by 941 <laughs> runs and Ian Brochel has taken 10 for. 10 for 44. 10 for 44, yeah. What about your boys? You've, you've got to be proud of having three boys on three AFL lists. But more recent times, there's been some things that would shake your confidence and certainly, I think, of Deborah, their mother. Yeah. I mean, with um, Angus is wearing the helmet because of bouts of concussion and Andrew got that uh, very much well-publicised... Um, Broken. It was it a broken jaw? Yeah. Was it? yeah. It was a, it was, well, it, well, there's the mandible, yep. and then there's a thing called an aviola or something or other beneath the teeth in the mandible, and that's what he broke. So, Deborah, it's interesting you ask about her. When the boys were teenagers and playing footy, she became less and less comfortable watching them to the point where she used to find it unbearable and used to walk away. And I remember saying to her one day, "You know what's going on? You'd, I don't remember you like this when I was playing, and I was playing against men." And mm. she looked at me and said, "Yeah, but I don't remember you going for the ball as hard as they did." <laughs> I'm sure she didn't um, mean to, to sort of put the dagger in, but that's her response. So I suppose she feels different about the boys and she's fair enough about her husband. But um, Angus's journey has been um, up and down in, in injuries and I think he's had a handful of concussions. He's got one or two as a schoolboy and, and my attitude was very different from Deborah's. I mean, she was uh, nurturing and, oh, you know, and mine, mine was from, well, you'll be right, get back mm. on the horse and... Lots of my friends have played and got concussed and get on with it. So that, that was a, a coming together. But, yeah, it's been quite stressful for Deborah in particular. I'm sure there were lots of talks around the kitchen table about, you know, the impact yeah. on him and his long-term health. Yeah. Was Deborah ever of the view that he should not go on, that he should give it away? Uh, no, but we both... The last one that he had, um, he was particularly distraught and concerned and she, I can remember being in the rooms at Coburg when, you know, he had another concussion and he was upset by the prospect of that and you could just sense it was wrapping over him. And after a little while, we ended up at the Melbourne Footy Club, Brendan McCartney um, and Z, the doctor, um, and Deborah and me. And we talked about it and the demons were wonderful, you know, the medical and the reason I mentioned, well, there was two of them, the doc and Macca, but the doctor explained that the recovery was going to be modular. In other words, you stay in a dark room until you're okay. And then when, you fin when you're okay to that, then you can start walking. And when you don't get a headache walking, you can start to jog mm -hmm. and then you can run and you can do competitive. And eventually the doctor said, um, he'll tell us when he's ready. And in the meantime, he's getting neurological assessments and so forth. So at the time I was watching that thinking, this is all excessive. He needs to get back on the horse because mm -hmm. he, he was stressing and you could sense that he was you know, flat. Separate to that, Macca was, was helping him, uh, and I'm sure Simon Goodwin gave him, you know, an old experienced coach this task of teaching him better techniques and better awareness and so forth. Um, and I'll never forget the doctor said to both of us, he'll tell us when he's ready. 
and early on he was nowhere near it. And I'm not helping by saying, come on, you'll be mm. right. And I'm highlighting all my mates that played in the 80s and that got lots of concussions. Darren Steele is a, his best mate's dad and a really close friend of ours. And I said, he's got a great job and you know, people have been playing footy for years. It's not boxing or it's not gridiron. Get on with it, which was very counterproductive. So if anybody's listening and have got a kid that's concussed, take your time. That's the message. Because in the end, the doctor at the Demons was spot on. I liken Angus to a dog in the back of the car just arriving at the beach or at the park, tail wagging, tongue hanging out, spinning around in the back seat at, a, at the excitement of getting out and having a, uh, a run around the beach. And that's what he was like. Um, when, when he was a week away from playing, he was like that dog. He gave his mother a big hug and said, one more sleep for a game against Casey. And, you know, two or three months earlier, he was dour and, and sad and worried about whether it was all going to finish for him. OK, the helmet. I suspect that Deborah was in favour of it. Yeah. Not sure that you or Angus would yeah, be. So there's a good story about the helmet. The boys all went to Halebury. Stewie Lowe and, uh, has a, a son and he went to Halebury and, and my fourth son and Stewie Lowe's boy are good mates. And Nathan Burke came on the scene helping out uh, as, a, as a sort of a consultant to the footy program at Halebury. And Stewie put Angus and Berkey together and Deborah and the three of them had breakfast one morning and Nathan Burke told Angus his experience which started out with lots of delayed onset concussions until such time as he was told uh, we can't pick you anymore because you keep knocking mm. yourself out. So he put the helmet on. There was a bit of a debate about whether the helmet was a waste of time, you know, in fact counterproductive because it expanded the size of your head or, or gave players an extra, extra confidence to go in. Which, but anyway, Nathan just put all that aside and said, I put a helmet on and that was the end of my problems. And he said to Angus, if I was to punch you in the head right now, would you like to have a helmet on or off? And Angus mm. said, I think I'll have a helmet on. He yeah. said, well, put the bloody thing on. And, you'll never, and he's never looked back. And in fact, his next, the first game he played was against the Saints and he and Kobe Stevens banged heads, believe it or not. Mm. Stevens um, sadly popped his eardrum, but Angus played on and there's a great scene of Max Gorn giving the clip and saying, get on with it. It was, it was just remarkable. So we're very pleased he's wearing a helmet and Deborah in particular would like to see it for the rest yeah. of his career. So what about kids and their sense of fashion? Was, was Angus reluctant to put yeah. it on? Yeah. yeah, I think he was. Um, but Nathan Burke was... Fabulous. He said, it is hot, you do struggle when it's windy, you know, you'd rather not wear it, but don't worry about it. I got to the stage where the trainer ran out and gave it to me, and it's fine. And Angus is well and truly moved past that. Let's turn to Andrew and the, the, that terrible incident uh, in the game against, uh, against West Coast. Yep. You were applauded universally with your attitude to it and your sympathy and empathy with the gaff. Uh, family after that. So I believe, yeah. Yeah, I must say, I thought you went over the top. And I, it was interesting that Angus yeah. reacted far more violently than you did uh, yeah. about what happened to his brother. Yeah, well, it's a long story. And, uh, so Deborah and I were in the... First of all, we were in the ground watching it, OK? And that was enormously beneficial. We were so lucky. I, there's a lot to be lucky about. And if we were in Melbourne at home watching the Fox replay time and time again... Um, the first we would have seen of it was then and there was nowhere to hide and, and more importantly nothing to do. So Deborah uh, very shortly afterwards was able to be on the spot which was a, a break for us. Um, when we saw it we were 100 odd metres away and couldn't see it so didn't really know what had happened and I, funnily enough, uh, Deborah was watching Melbourne play on the AFL app run out of batteries mm. because <laughs> Angus was playing at the same time. And so I had a little bit of battery left on my phone and, and when Andrew got hit I assumed he'd be alright, go and get some stitches, come back. And Deborah looked at me and demanded the phone. And I um, refused to give it to her because I didn't I wanted to preserve the batteries. 
Anyway, after four or five minutes, when he hadn't come back, um, she looked at me and there was no, it was just give me that phone and, and I'd fired it up and there was a couple of nasty texts by that stage from friends. And about the seriousness about of the it. About the severity yeah. of it, yeah. those of whom that were not there. And I, I looked at that and she did as well. And then the club doctor rings. Now, the club doctors at footy clubs are, are 18 or 36 very unique people. Um, the guy at Frio, Ken Withers, I, I used to work at the dockers and he was there then, so I've known him a long while. Been around a long, long time. And they have this calming way of dealing with stuff. So he said, it's Ken Withers here. We, get, we have called an ambulance. We think there might be a broke, broken jaw. His teeth aren't. He's had his teeth pushed back, but he's not too bad, and I'll put him on. And when Ken said he's not too bad, and I, I know this sounds callous, but having been in footy a long while, when a club doctor says it's not too bad, um, and Andrew was quite defiant when I spoke to him, I thought, great. You know, I, I, I took a lot of comfort out of, of Ken's diagnosis because he's been around a long, long while. Deborah, on the other hand, was quite upset, grabbed my phone and left. And so I spent the next the rest of that quarter um, in amongst some of the dockers. I was sitting next to the Giro's you know, I'm just getting to know, and in the everyone, all eyes were looking at me in a sense because they'd slowly but surely realising something had gone wrong with Deborah leaving. And I watched the rest of the quarter, and I I was watching Andrew Gaff, um, in particular, and you could just see that he was in a dreadful space, didn't want to be there. His body language is bloody horrible. And one by one, you saw Dockers playing players coming off the bench and making a beeline and whacking him. And all the Eagles people could steadily became aware of this as well. Nothing on the big screen, and then. I, was, I could sense that it was about to get out of control. Um, just before three-quarter time, the club came back and gave me the phone and I saw for the first time what had happened. Uh, and at that stage, there was almost... The Eagles players had come out and were standing. It looked like a schoolboy's game. They were standing in position just waiting for, for the opposition to come out and Ross was speaking to the um, Dockers players and I thought, great leadership because I've subsequently found out that they were irate and, and really incensed and wanting to take revenge and Ross hosed them down. Um, and I started thinking about all sorts of things such as it's a derby and this will be in the... Because I'm a West Australian, as you know, you know so this will be part of the derby narrative. This young man has got free agency. This might be his last game. He's going to miss the finals. Who knows about the Brownlow? Um, the social and accredited media in Perth will just feast on this. And then I started thinking about his mum and dad because as a parent of a footy player, you really have this friendship within the, the, the parent group. We haven't yet got it at West Coast because Hamish hasn't played yet and they live in Perth and we're starting to get it for Fremantle. We've certainly got it at Melbourne where you really ride the highs, highs and lows of, mm -hmm. of the boys and you get become friendly. And, and I suddenly thought to myself as I sat there all on my own, um, this is, you know... This, oh, and by then I'd got started getting texts and Don Pike, Alistair Clarkson, spring to mind, both of whom said, Pikey said, yeah, and this, for what it's worth, this is really out of character. So um, I, I, bearing in mind what Ken Withers said, I felt like, okay, well, he's okay, and, uh, and then I could see it unravelling. And then I got in the car after the game with my son Hamish, who's an Eagles listed player, and he drove, drove us home. And he said that Andrew Gaff, if he said, if you had have asked me, at the beginning of the game, this was going to happen. He'd be the last guy to do it. Yeah, you can see how... Yeah, the pain on his face there. He yeah. said he was uh, distraught and mm. inconsolable in the rooms. Um, and he, Hamish said, look, I've seen it. It's not particularly nice, but I think Andrew might have lowered his, you know... So we, we Your Andrew. Yeah, yeah, my Andrew. So we got home. By that stage, everybody was saying, Andrew Gaff's the nicest guy, you know, you can't believe he did it. Hamish described him as one of his best mates and together with Shannon Hearn, the last guy on the list he'd think about it. 
and we watched and watched and watched and you could just see my Andrew spread his legs ever so slightly, brace, lower his centre of gravity and put his mouth where his chest was. So once that Sorry, happened, before you... So you believe that? No, you believe no question. No that, question. That your boy dropped his... Unquestionably. OK. And so you think Gaff was aiming for his chest? No doubt. And that's a separate issue, but no doubt. And, and some people like you have, have said, boy, you were magnanimous and all the rest of it, but that magnanimity was on the basis of an accident. If Andrew Gaff had have lined my Andrew up and punched him in the face um, deliberately, there would have been none of that. And all the talk about he, he would have had what was coming to him. But, but I felt 100% convinced, chiefly because of Hamish's friendship and, and what I saw in the video, that it was a garden variety accident. Mm. And, and at that stage, I started, Deborah and I, particularly in light of the... By then, we'd spoken to Ken Withers a couple of times and we started feeling for the Gaff family and particularly young Andrew. Notwithstanding all that, you don't, you, you don't need to be reminded about how he looked, but yeah. when you see this, when you see that's your boy yeah. with his face just mangled, yeah. I must say, when your sense of... Figure, you were like Mother Teresa with, with, with Andrew Gaff. Now, I have no issue with him and I, I accept the view yeah. that he's a good kid and it was out of character and it was... Yeah. Probably an accident, but that's the result of it. Well, a funny story. Um, I'm running around the world telling everybody that he'll be fine and, and it's, it's not the end of the world and it's three weeks and, you know, he's... And bearing in mind what Ken told me, and, and I'm trying not to be flippant or callous, but, but footy is not working in a library or in a building like this. It's a, it's a game where it can be violent. And um, at the end of the day, he's going to miss three games and he'll be fine. How are his teeth? His teeth, uh, there's five of them that are dead. Dead? But they could, the, doc, the dentist said he could, could live with them. And, and, and he, but Andrew did say one stage, Dad got no idea, here am I, drinking through a straw, taking pills, waking up, can't sleep, got, you know, lip exploded and, and you know, wire that's driving me mad and he's telling the world that I'm... So uh, was he angry like, with you? A little bit, yeah. Was he? Yeah. And but I also, um, I, I understand that and I... But I also, we've always brought the boys up to, you know, you'll be right, get on with it. And, and I hope this is the worst thing that happens to him in his career. Mm. If he has a long career and um, as, he, as he does, then he'll be, next time something like this happens, he'll be tougher and stronger and, and, and he's in great hands. That's the other thing. The footy club, the way in which the Dockers and the Eagles have responded to this has just been magnificent. Mm. And, and it's not, like, for example, shortly after that, on a Sunday night, they were in a clinic with, a, with two experts operating... Um, and fixing him, you know? And, and if you and I had that, we'd have to wait in the queue and turn up a week or two later. And so the Dockers uh, and all the clubs are terrific at, at rallying what the resources, and he's in very, very good hands and he'll be fine. But if he hadn't have been punched in the face, Mark, none of this would have happened. Yeah, true. And, and, and how did it sit when you saw what Angus said? Angus was angry, yeah. huh? Yeah. And, and he voiced his anger. It was almost diametrically yeah. opposed to, to your view. And don't worry, my mother was... Um, a little bit like you as well, you know, suggesting that I'd forgotten that Andrew Gaff was not my son and mm. Andrew Brayshaw was. And I'd respect everybody's view. And Ang Angus was, um, yeah, he, he was raw and it was great. I mean, he, he's a brother. I'm, I, I'm not saying I'm right. And my, my interpretation was different from Deborah's as well. Um, she was much more uh, feminine in her response, but it's just how I felt. And, and I kept getting asked by people, mm. lots in the media, how do you feel? And that's just how I felt. I felt that my bloke will be all right. With all due respect to Angus, he's a young bloke with it all ahead of him and he's entitled to react like that for his brother mm. but I'm, I'm 52 and I've seen a bit of it and I, I'm very comfortable that my Andrew will be fine and I'm hoping that Andrew Gaff mm. will be too.
You're very noble about that. What did you think when, when you read that Paul Gaff, Andrew's father, was in hospital with yeah. a serious heart condition? Terrible, terrible. That terrible. in itself, of course, it's, that in itself is terrible. But did you think that what happened in the previous week would have any effect, would, well, would have I, contributed I'm, to that? Look, I would want to be careful how I answer this question. I've got no idea. I'm not a doctor. Um, but I, I intuitively think there might have been some sort of something. It couldn't have helped, put it that way. And I, I can only imagine that young Andrew um, was thinking, goodness, you know, in addition to all the other grief that mm. I've, this has given rise to within my family, yeah, Dad's sick, really sick. So, yeah, terrible, terrible. And that goes back to the point I made earlier about the kinship you have with the parents. Mm. We'd had a dinner earlier. The Eagles had a dinner for the Victorian parents and we hadn't really got to know Paul and Susan, but we'd spent an hour in their house and, under tough times and a week later, Paul's in hospital. I'm talking about your other two boys. Hamish is at West Coast, hasn't played a game, but I remember the unbridled joy on your face and, and the tears from yeah. Deborah when he was drafted, I think, number 68. Yeah. Uh, and, and he got an opportunity to join his brothers. Yeah, so we went to the draft. Look, the AFL, I'd be nothing without AFL footy. I just want to say that. And I'd like to think this makes the cut, by the way. I've played <laughs> and I've been I'm lucky enough to be employed and involved. And as a director for eight years, you volunteer your time and give back, but it's... The ledger is in my favour, there's no question. And some of the highlights have been going, to, two of the highlights have been going to the draft. Um, they get the parents from what they think will be the top ten. We did it at the Gold Coast with Angus and then a couple of years later with Andrew. So we went to, to great, uh, the Western Sydney um, for, the, for the draft night, knowing that Andrew would go in the top ten and hoping that Hamish would go in the bottom ten. And in actual fact, as we walked over, Andrew said to Deborah, you know, I hope I, this is not going to be much fun if Ham Hamish doesn't get drafted. Um, so we get to 67 or whatever it was, and I said, look, this is his first live pick, West Coast, because they'd suggested that they were interested in him. And uh, they'd said, there's one kid we think might still be there, and if he is, we'll probably take him as a rookie. So we get to pick 67, and I elbowed Deborah and said, this is the first live pick, which a long, long time after pick two. And uh, the thing says, West Coast's on the clock, and I'm assuming that that whoever that kid was, if he was still there, bingo, they'd pick it straight away. But it kept on going and it went for a minute or so and I start to think to myself, gee, this is um, auguring well for Andrew. And then Andrew Dillon walked out and he had this silly little smirk on his face knowing that there'd be a, it was a feel-good pick and it was Hamish and, yeah, it was wonderful. Now, the, the, the forgotten boy, I know he's not forgotten by you and Deborah, but Will, Will's in Afghanistan. I sensed when I was trying to coerce Deborah into coming onto the show that Will is her major concern. Yeah. Because he's in a war zone, yeah. isn't he? You mentioned it a minute ago. We, a lot of people say, oh, you must be proud about the three boys on the lists. And I haven't been able to come up with a word yet because I'm proud of William. Uh, I love the fact that the boys are playing league footy and we get to go and watch and it's a, it's a privilege and a thrill. But I feel most proud about William. So he came home from school in year 11 and said, I think this is something I'd like to do, become an officer. Uh, it's a great career. It says, you know, you get paid, you, you know, you, you get out in the outdoors and you get wonderful leadership skills and 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 he could not be happier and then he he did pretty well Duntroon is a is a brutal um 12 months and he he was at the sharp end of it which meant that he had all the options within the within the the defense force and i said oh, i'll get into logistics and you know you'll set yourself afterwards and keep yourself out of harm's way and he came back and said no no i don't want to do that i'm i'm actually good at this 
and if it's not me, it's someone else. So I'm going to do it, and I love it. And he's in the infantry, and um, he's in Afghanistan, and it's a um, he's in a uh, like a security mission. So it's he tells me that it's pretty line and length, um, <laughs> and and safe. But he has aspirations down the track to continue his career, and who knows where that'll lead. But it's um, well, look, there's st uh, I'm not a particularly social media guy at all, but there's a thing called uh, WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. And all the, the six of us are on it, and he's always contributing, particularly with footy. And, and the Andrew Gaff incident, he had a fairly strong opinion. Yeah. So it's 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 not like it was the last century where you couldn't speak to your boy, but he's yeah, he's he's there until March. Everything on the surface seems to unfold have unfolded perfectly for the Brayshaw family, from your father down. But there was a black moment um, when your sister Sally died. She yep. died in Melbourne. House bricks fell on her during a renovation. Yep. That must have traumatised the family. It did. Um, she tried to shut the roof of an old uh, garage door and the, and the bricks fell from the lintel. So I spoke to Harry Unglick, who was a club doctor, and he, he said she wouldn't have felt anything and would have gone out like a light. So that was a great comfort. The footy community was just unbelievable that Claremont and North Melbourne and the AFL community wrapped around all of us in, in particular, which was uh, fabulous. And Choco Williams and I, Choco worked at Port with me and his brother died almost mm. in, in very, very similar circumstances. And amongst all these well wishes, Choco sent me a text, only the good die young, and I suddenly thought, bloody hell. And so he and I went and had a coffee just around here, not far from the studio, and talked about, about it. And of all the well wishes that I had, the fact that we were able to talk to one another with such spooky, similar experiences, and we then started talking about our parents, and he gave me some really practical advice, and... And he and I are tight, but gee, that was that was important. So, um, yeah, my sister was uh, in her thirties, had lived an extremely um, busy uh, life, almost as if it was predetermined that she wasn't going to live very long. She travelled the world and done all these wonderful things, and, and had these experiences that that um, uh, you know, as I said, you'd live like you're going to die tomorrow, dream like you're going to live forever. A famous story about your three boys, the footballers doing 100 repetitions of 100-metre sprints yep. on Christmas morning every year. Is yep. that true? That's true. It's my fault because I told them that um, when I grew up in Perth, Barry Cable uh, apparently used to go for a punishing, brutal run on Christmas Day in Perth to try and get the edge on Billy Walker. Uh, so I said to the boys, if you really want to um, you know, optimise your talent, you've got to work hard. And, and I said, anyway, so they do it. They do 100 hundreds. It's blisteringly hot. Well, two or three of their mates come along. They did it in Vietnam. Um, this time, and uh, they're going to do it as a fundraiser for the Hampton Rovers Are they? over uh, Christmas Eve, I think, this year. But yeah, it's part of the, the routine, and it's almost um, it's a good luck charm. And do you supervise it? I stand there, run the yeah. water out, and but yeah. Angus has got the watch. And so there's 35 seconds between yeah. repetitions. Yep. Yeah. And when did this start? And at the, oh, about four years ago. Yeah. And they do it when they get to whatever their ATAR score is. So. 96, I think. They have to really go flat chat. <laughs> well, you mean that one of them was bad enough to get a 96? Yeah, well, they got in the 90s. Uh, so, yes, anyway, yeah, that's part, it's a badge of honour. You had three, three years at Richmond as CEO? Yep. Did you three get a, uh, a load of something that you didn't order one day? Yeah, I, uh, we had a, a game at Geelong, dreadful. Richmond at Geelong was, it was a notorious hotspot. Uh, we're beaten by... Uh,